Hey, what's up, everybody? This is Joey Calvez. I want to tell you guys a little bit about the Department of Metahuman Affairs. This one is a story about a team led by a retired sidekick, two felons, a failed actor from Broadway, and a reprogrammed cyborg. But their first mission is to stop the criminals who have robbed a bank, and they will have to set the world at ease. You're going to get 180 pages of entertainment action-packed awesomeness right here in the first six issues in a collected hardcover volume one all you got to do is head on over to kickstarter.com and type in the department of metahuman affairs or dma and check it out right now I've got another brand new episode for you guys tonight, but before we get into that, I just wanted to try something a bit different by briefly discussing some current crime news that's been going on in Alaska recently, and I'd like to add this as a segment whenever there's a big story going on, which we do have going on right now. Recently, the big story that's been happening has been the trials of David Grunwald's murderers. It's quite a bizarre story, so for you listeners that don't live in the area, I will give a synopsis, uh, brief as possible. On November 13, 2016, 16-year-old David Grunwald went missing. He lived about 40 miles north of Anchorage in the town of Palmer, Alaska. He had driven to his girlfriend's house that night to drop her off around 7 p.m., A few hours later, his mother, Edith, realized he was late coming home and was instantly worried. He was a good kid and would usually let her know if he was going to be late for some reason. The next day, his Bronco was found parked on an isolated road. It had obviously been set on fire and was quite burned up. This was, of course, a terrifying discovery, and a huge search began for the boy. People, dogs, horses, and drones were involved in the search, which covered many miles of isolated areas, but found no further evidence. David really looked like the classic all-American guy. He had brown hair, blue eyes, and a big smile. He was lanky, at six foot tall, and 150 pounds. At the time of his disappearance, he was attending a career-focused school with plans to join the military and hopefully become a pilot. This would be following in the footsteps of both of his parents, who had both spent decades in the military. He was also really into engineering and computers and was very intelligent. According to his mother, he was not the kind of guy to get in trouble, and his girlfriend Victoria She knew that he had said he might swing by a friend's house on the way home, but that friend said that David never showed up. And other than the Bronco, that was the only real lead for the moment. However, a few weeks after his disappearance, there was a break in the case. On December 2nd, a 17-year-old named Eric Almendinger led police to David's remains, which were left in an isolated area in the woods. Now, Eric had actually been a suspect or at least a person of interest right away because David's girlfriend had also mentioned that David had said he might end up giving Eric a ride to Anchorage that night. So police ended up questioning Eric, 
who at first claimed that he took a cab to Anchorage, but this was quickly proven to be a lie. They did, however, find a cab driver who had taken three teenagers to Eric's house that night, and pings from a tablet of Eric's would also place him near the location that the Bronco was found on the night of the crime. So Eric was soon arrested in connection with the murder, but this arrest would lead to so many more. In total, there would be five young men arrested in connection with the crime. There was Eric, then Austin Barrett, age 19, Devin Peterson, age 18, Dominic Johnson, age 16, and Bradley Renfro, age 16. When these defendants came to court the first time, they were all together, and they looked like really nothing more than boys. They arrived shackled together, and the juxtaposition between their baby faces, but with their jail outfits and their shackles, was shocking. And the case quickly began to gain national attention. It was one of those cases that is inconceivable. And eventually a story would emerge that David stopped by a residence to hang out and smoke weed with the other guys. At some point, the other guys decided to pistol whip him, throw him in his own Bronco, and drove him out to a place called Knick River Road and shot him to death. They then dumped his body there a few hundred feet from a road. And the reason initially given was that he had smoked all of their weed. I'm not even joking. Four of the boys would end up with murder charges. Only Devin Peterson received lesser charges in relation to helping cover up the crime. He was actually able to post bail while the others had gone straight into custody. Oddly enough, Devin Peterson and Austin Barrett had been arrested just the previous summer in relation to kidnapping and assault in a completely unrelated case, but neither ended up charged with a crime. Eric would later claim that Dominic Johnson had asked him to grab a gun from his house and bring it out to a nearby trailer where they were partying. Dominic then allegedly bludgeoned David with the weapon. He said he accompanied Dominic to the woods where he shot David in the head. Eric later said that it was actually Austin Barrett who did the shooting. The actual shooter has actually still not been made clear to this day. Apparently they then found a place to ditch the Bronco, pour gasoline on it, and set it alight in an attempt to destroy evidence. However, it was at this point that they had called a cab, thus giving themselves another witness to having been at that location. Just this week, Eric Allmendinger received guilty verdicts on nine charges in relation to the crime, including first-degree murder. His sentencing will occur at a future date. Devin Peterson previously pled guilty to his lesser charges and is still awaiting sentencing. The rest of the defendants will go on trial at some unknown point in the future, which could be as far out as 2019. So until then, they'll just remain in custody. All in all, it's a tragic case, obviously. A family lost their beloved son, and several other families will experience a different sort of tragic loss in watching their sons go to prison, many of which will 
completely waste any potential they may have had by spending their lives in prison, probably. It'll be interesting to see how the younger teens are treated in trial, whether they are sentenced as adults or minors. Like I said previously, two of them were just 16 at the time, while a couple of the others were already actual adults, so hard to say. Though, I don't know. I don't have a concrete opinion on that, it just kind of depends on the crime. I will keep you guys all updated as this case evolves, though. So now that that little update is out of the way, we will hop into the main topic for tonight's episode. So Alaska is really the state to live in if you want to go missing. We have far more missing people than any other state, by far. After all, there is all that rugged wilderness out there. There's the deep dark forest where it's just really easy to get turned around. And we have incredibly cold weather for much of the year, which makes it that much easier to succumb to the elements when you do get lost. And if you haven't dressed properly for a hike, you could also just die that way. It's just that easy, really. And if there's foul play involved, it's... Well, I won't say it's, it would be incredibly easy to hide someone's body out there in all that space and just have them remain on the missing persons list forever. Honestly, there's missing persons cases still considered open and up on the website that are from like 1960. So, you know, no body, no crime. So I'm going to actually give you some numbers and probably blow your mind a little bit. So Alaska actually began keeping track of our missing persons numbers in 1988. I don't know why it took that long, but in those 30 years, there have been over 60,000 missing persons reports. 60,000. And of course, some of those were surely reported in error, but that's still a massive amount of people just straight up disappearing. That'd be approximately 2,000 a year, or about five and a half people a day. Freaky, right? And while a lot of those cases have pretty obvious answers, there are the other cases that are a lot more mysterious with weird clues or indicators of foul play somehow being involved. Those are the cases I look to cover, and that'll be the topic for this episode. It's gonna be a long running series because Obviously, there are quite a few cases out there that either seem like foul plays involved or don't have super obvious answers. Or there's an obvious suspect but no body. Or there's absolutely no explanation that fits all of the weird clues left behind. As you might guess, I have a really long list. <laughs> like, ridiculous. But if you know of someone you'd like me to cover, I would love to hear from you. Email address is in the show notes, so send it my way. However, for this first Missing in Alaska episode, I'm going to be discussing a very specific phenomenon which I found, which was two sets of missing siblings. And while you may agree with me that the first case I'll discuss is relatively straightforward, the second one is 
Far from it. There can be few things worse for a parent than to have one of their children go missing. Therefore, it's incomprehensible to think how a family could cope with having two of their children go missing. In this episode, I'll be discussing two families that had to experience that tragedy. Each set of siblings went missing in quite different circumstances, but the one thing they have in common is that they all seem to have disappeared into thin air in somewhat bizarre circumstances. The first story takes place in Sterling, Alaska. It's a tiny community with um, about 5,000 people right now. It's approximately 140 miles south of Anchorage, or 220 kilometers. Um, it's, like I said, 5,000 now, so when our story takes place 40 years ago, it was extremely rural with very few people. It was actually originally called Naptown, which they definitely should have tapped for obvious reasons. And, you know, I honestly couldn't find data on how many people lived there at the time, but I'm guessing no more than a few hundred. In just a few months, it will be the 40th anniversary of this case, which is the disappearance of Scott and Amy Fandel. At the time, the 13-year-old son and 8-year-old daughter were living with their mother Margaret in a small cabin in Sterling. Margaret was working as a waitress at a local restaurant to support her children. She had recently gotten separated from her husband Roger, who was the father to Amy, but had been um, Scott's stepfather. But he would later maintain that he felt as much love for him as his biological daughter, and he felt that he had basically been the only father figure that he really ever had. As can be the case in families that have a less than stellar relationship between the parents, the two siblings were very close, and Scott was said to be incredibly protective of Amy. And since they did live in a pretty rural cabin in a woodsy area, it's probably nice for both Amy and Margaret to have Scott around after Roger left. Even though he was just barely a teenager, relatives would later state that he was pretty assertive and sure of himself, and at school he was known to be a cut-up class clown. He had a ton of friends. He was kind of cocky, but it's not a bad thing. So, on September 4th, 1978, Margaret and her sister, Kathy Schoenfelder, had gone out to eat with the children at a bar and restaurant in the area called Good Time Charlie's. They later stated that they dropped the children off at the cabin around 10 p.m. and went out for drinks. The children were in a pretty isolated cabin, far from civilization, with a front door that didn't lock. Thankfully, however, they did have neighbors, the Loptons, and they went to visit them that evening when they got home. They were pretty good friends with the kids that lived there, and they would often stay the night over there. Later that night, around 2 or 3 a.m., Margaret and Kathy came back to the cabin, which was pitch dark. They noticed there was actually a boiling pot of water on the stove and a box of pasta sitting there. But they went to bed, assuming the children were either asleep in the other room or sleeping over at the Lopton's house. 
The next morning, Margaret went to work, and Kathy ended up sleeping in quite late. Neither realized that the kids had not been there that morning, and both assumed that they had gotten up and left for school early, either from that house or from the Lupton's house. However, that afternoon, the Lupton's came over looking for the siblings, and Margaret and Kathy realized with horror that the kids had disappeared sometime after they had dropped them off. Based on the evidence left behind, the boiling water on the stove and the food sitting there, it seems as though the children left in a hurry. However, they had also turned off all the lights in the house before they disappeared, which the mom stated was pretty abnormal since they were pretty scared of the dark, and even if they were leaving the house, would generally not think to turn all the lights off. Other than what I just mentioned, there really weren't any other good clues. Nothing to base a lead on, at least. There have been quite a few theories mentioned in connection to this case, including the most likely, statistically, which would be a family abduction. When kids are kidnapped, it's percentage-wise, I don't know exactly, but it's almost always going to be kidnapping by a non-custodial parent. And their parents had recently gone through a contentious separation. And it said that Margaret had been responding to the separation pretty badly. She'd been drinking a lot, going out a lot, and possibly not providing the most stable home life. If her ex, Roger, had caught wind of that, he may have wanted to take the kids away to live what he might perceive as a better life. Several months prior to the disappearance was when they had gotten separated, and Roger had left to live in Arizona. His alibi was that he was in Arizona when they disappeared, but he did end up flying back to Alaska to help search for them. The second theory is a non-family abduction. As previously stated, the family had been out at a bar and restaurant early that evening, and if a fellow patron heard that the kids were going to be home alone, they could easily have been followed to the family home and waited for the mom and aunt to leave. This seems less likely, but judging from other cases I've researched, there were quite a few skeezy people in Alaska back then, as now, <laughs> and it seems like they often tend to gravitate towards more rural areas where they can have privacy to be weirdos. In a place like Sterling, which is basically surrounded by wilderness, it'd be pretty easy to hide a body if you wanted to. Don't take my advice, please. The third theory is an animal attack. I've seen this mentioned a few places during my research, and I think it's a pretty weak theory. It would be hard for an animal to somehow carry off both children, including a feisty teenage boy, and leave absolutely no evidence. Like, no blood, no scraps of clothing or anything like that. I tend to think this theory doesn't hold up whatsoever. The fourth theory would be some other circumstance that is not obvious or likely. It's definitely possible they could have left on their own and gotten lost, but not really likely. 
and the water left boiling on the stove is the most telling clue in this case, which indicates them leaving in a rush of some kind. But whether that was due to fear or excitement, hard to say. For this case, I feel 99% certain that the first theory is most likely accurate, or at least some variation thereof. I definitely think the estranged husband was involved, whether physically or peripherally. Years after the disappearance, a girlfriend of Rogers allegedly offered to give information on the case in exchange for money, but she never ended up revealing what she knew. Margaret's brother Terry has stated that he thinks Amy is alive, but that Scott died around the time of the disappearance. Based on my own personal beliefs and research, I'm very certain that Amy's still alive, and about 70% certain that Scott is as well. I can only hope that they are in contact with their mother or do reach out to her someday. It's been 40 years since the night they disappeared, and I can't imagine any mother having to go that long without knowing where her kids are. Even if Margaret was in a bad place and not providing the best home life, no one deserves the fate of always wondering where your loved ones are. I am interested to hear what you guys think, because I think debating this sort of thing can sometimes garner new leads or ideas. I think it's a good thing anyways. The second set of siblings to go missing have disappearances that are far, far less cut and dry. For a start, they didn't disappear at the same time, and that's just for a start. So, just about 40 miles north of Anchorage are the two small towns of Wasilla and Palmer. They each currently have less than 10,000 people, but in the year 1999, Wasilla, where our story takes place, had a population hovering around 5,000. Ironically, the Palmer family lived in Wasilla at that time. The family had three sons, which was the oldest, Chris, the middle son, Chucky, or Charles Jr., and Michael. And there was also a daughter named Hannah. On the night of June 3rd, 1999, the Palmer family would experience the worst kind of tragedy, a missing son. Of course, at that time, they never could have predicted that this terrifying circumstance would later repeat itself with another one of their sons. Michael was the youngest boy, as I just said, and he was 15 years old on the night of his disappearance. Now this took place during that time of year when real, in quote marks, warm weather, real to Alaskans, is just starting to hit Anchorage and the surrounding towns. You know, 60 degrees, balmy day, it's perfect. A suntan weather. And as it gets closer to summer solstice, daylight hours get continuously longer until it starts to feel like the sun never really sets. It's a pretty awesome feeling. You can go outside at midnight and read a book by the light of the sky. It's really magical, especially for kids that want to make the best of their summer and, you know, go out late at night and have adventures. We used to play baseball in the street till like 11 p.m. because it was light outside. It was awesome. 
That night, Michael and his friends snuck out of their houses and rode their bikes to some nearby parties to hang out with some friends and drink a little beer. It was actually the first party that Michael had ever been to. And it's said that at one of these parties, Michael got into some sort of altercation. But according to the people present, it was relatively minor. After a long night of fun, the boys decided to take the several-mile journey back to one of their houses. On the ride, they were a bit spread out on their bikes, and without anyone noticing, Michael completely disappeared. Once they did notice that he was missing, they decided to stop and wait a while for him to catch up, but he didn't show up. Eventually, they decided he must have peddled to his own house instead, and they went home and went to bed. And since it was 1999, none of them had cell phones, so they just had to make an assumption which would turn out to be very bad. The next day, they realized he had never made it home. So, of course, the parents were thrown into a panic, and the police got involved and started a search. They would eventually find a bicycle in nearby Little Susitna River. They assumed the bike to be Michael's, but I found a quote from his oldest brother, Chris, that said he didn't believe it really was Michael's bike, but couldn't find the uh, actual answer on that one. Nevertheless, the river was searched by police divers who found nothing else of note. There was a log jam downstream, so they knew that if he had fallen in the river and drowned, his body would have washed up against the log jam, so they knew that that hadn't happened. A large number of people soon joined in the ground search, and they also eventually found Michael's shoes, and this would prove to be an extremely puzzling clue. They were found soaking wet and placed neatly on the ground next to each other, a couple hundred yards from the river. And tracker dogs were brought to the scene, but didn't get a lead on anything. So, those shoes are... I can't make any sense of why that would be like that. <laughs> Unless someone was like a criminal genius and trying to throw people off, it just makes no sense. So, Charles Palmer Sr. ended up hiring two PIs to search for his son. The first left town after she said that she had received threats. The family had actually received plenty of creepy and mean prank calls from the kinds of people who think that shit is funny. The second PI heard rumors that Michael may have been murdered at the party he had been at and that his friends were covering it up. He could never truly get to the bottom of the story, but the senior Palmer would later unequivocally state that he didn't believe the story that his, friends, son, or his son's friends had told about the night he went missing. A state trooper investigator named Leonard Walner was running down leads on this case for several years. And as of 2006, he said he was cautiously optimistic about new evidence related to DNA, but I could not find a single follow-up to this statement. And he appears to now be retired, so, I mean, obviously his optimism was flawed, but I'd like to know what he thought he was going to find, I guess. 
So, it's now been nearly 20 years since he went missing, and no other trace of him has ever been found. I'm interested to hear your theories on what could have happened, because I don't have one. I don't have a theory that fits the weird clues. I definitely think it's possible that something terrible happened at the party they were at, but it seems really hard to believe that a bunch of kids could keep it a secret for so long. And that still doesn't explain the shoes or the bike, unless, like I said, one of them was a criminal genius and was trying to throw off the investigation altogether. It was just, it's just weird. It's confounding. And if that wasn't tragic enough, that wouldn't be the only time that this family would have to deal with the pain of not knowing where a loved one is. In April 2010, the two remaining Palmer brothers, Chucky and Chris, were 30 and 32 respectively. They were very close and did a lot of stuff together. The weekend of April 10th, they were going on a trip to the Talkeetna Mountains, which is around an hour's drive from where they lived. They were going to be staying in a cabin with a group of friends and family members and doing a lot of backcountry snow machining. Now, you people in other places may call it snowmobiling, which feels unnatural, but we call it snow machining. Or at least I do. It's a beloved winter activity among the more adventurous of us. And at that time of year, the weather is starting to kind of warm up, but, you know, by Alaskan standards, that's like 30 degrees instead of 5, so, you know, gotta take what you can get. <laughs> There's generally still pretty good snow to be found on the mountains. That weekend was actually really snowy, and there were already a couple of feet of snow on the ground already, so it was, you know, pretty good riding weather, as far as the snow was concerned anyways. So, on Saturday, they all woke up and decided to start their snow machine journey. Unfortunately, it started off poorly when Chris had to bow out of the trip because a part on his snow machine broke, so he would end up staying back at the cabin all day. Chucky decided to go on anyway as he had been really excited about it. He'd actually recently purchased his new snow machine and didn't have a whole lot of experience. Even still, he felt that his friends would help him out if he needed it. Unfortunately, this was a tragic turn of events on all sides. It ended up snowing all day, but they were on a trail that was pretty easy to follow, so it shouldn't have been a problem. And with his inexperience, Chucky was lagging behind the others in a bizarre mirroring of his younger brother's disappearance. Chris would later say that he, when he was on the trips, would usually pull up the rear to make sure that no one got left behind. But he wasn't there. As darkness was approaching, the group decided to head back to the cabin they were staying at for the night. When they reached the cabin, they realized Chucky wasn't with them. They, you know, had been somewhat spread out, so no one seemed to know exactly when he had been left behind. Now, I'm not particularly outdoorsy, though I do like sun, uh, but I do know that the first rule of backcountry activities, especially in cold weather, is the buddy system. Anyways, so the group began looking for him as soon as they realized he wasn't there, 
and after many hours, they knew that they had to get the troopers involved. Over the next five days, multiple troopers and search and rescue people combed the area as best as they could. Pretty near the start of the search, they actually found his snow machine uh, pulled off on a side trail, which was much less defined than the main trail, and the machine had become bogged down in deep snow. It was several miles from the cabin. There were absolutely no footprints around the snow machine, which everyone found to be quite bizarre. However, it had been snowing, so it's possible that the tracks were covered. But you have to picture waist-deep snow. I mean, I'd like to be pragmatic about this, but it's hard to imagine those prints disappearing completely <laughs> in that time period. Anyways, troopers tried to search from the air in a helicopter, but the weather turned pretty bad that week, and it was making it hard for the helicopter to even get in the air safely. Over the course of the search, it would end up snowing nearly three feet. The weather was so bad that the sustained search in such bad terrain was actually putting the search and rescue people in jeopardy of getting lost themselves. The search was called off. This may sound silly, but I have seen reports where people have been part of search parties here and then they themselves go missing forever, so it's a real thing. The search was resumed that spring after much of the snow had melted. Around 40 to 50 searchers joined in as well as tracker dogs, but they still could find no trace of him. Into the summer, more searches were made from aircraft, but they didn't spot anything. Despite these exhaustive efforts, absolutely no clues were ever found beyond the abandoned snow machine. Eventually, they would end up deciding that his remains had probably been scattered by animals, making it damn near impossible to spot them, unless you were literally right on top of them. And while this could explain why his body was never found, many were hung up on the location of the snow machine and the lack of footprints. It made almost no sense for the snow machine to be located in that location. The person would have had to make the conscious choice to turn 90 degrees onto this extremely snowy trail that no one would choose to ride on. And, of course, the lack of footprints had a lot of people freaked out. The local fire chief, an actual professional man who was present during much of the search, later said that he had no other explanation for this than an alien abduction. Almost exactly a year after Chucky went missing, he was legally declared dead. He left behind three daughters. Now, all that remains of the family's sons is the oldest brother, Chris who is now in his 40s. Luckily, he still has his sister, Hannah, as well. One can hope he will one day receive answers for why he lost both of his brothers. I certainly wish the best for the family and hope that they someday get the chance to lay their sons to rest. So, again, I'm interested in hearing your guys' theories. I guess my only real theory for this is Maybe he 
fell off the snow machine and then it went veering off into the snow and broke and then he decided to walk to the cabin. That is absolutely the only thing I can think of to explain all the evidence, but again, I'd love to hear from you. I really hope that one of these guys, if not both, get found someday. It seems hard to believe that so many people could be searching in this area and find zero clue. Like, he was wearing clothes, so those should be somewhere, you know? If I was a little bit more physically active, I would love to go out and do search and rescue type stuff. Maybe someday. Anyways, thanks you guys. Hope you enjoyed this new episode. I'll be back sometime in the future. Good night.